0: well, welcome to everybody this evening. Um, My name's Valerie Sinison. I'm a poet and analyst, and it's my pleasure to be holding this conversation with Grayson Perry, um, who is obviously sitting here on my right. Um, In order to begin, can we just find out how many people sitting here are artists or connected to artists? So... That, that's quite a lot. Can you see each other in the dark?
1: I'm, I'm putting it at about
0: 20%. Okay, can we have therapists and counsellors? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I put about the same spread, About actually. the same. Yeah, um, so.
0: Can we hear what other backgrounds people have come here from? For example, how many people have come having seen Grayson's incredible works of art? And how many people are here because of the kind of iconic way Grayson's addressed himself to the politics of sexuality, art and everything?
1: Ah. (laughs) Right. OK, thank you. It's nice to know who you're talking to, though, isn't it? (laughs) Okay. So I, I wanted
0: to start... We're, we're in therapy
1: here, we've got to oh. face each other.
0: <laughs> oh, it's, it's not analytic if you're facing, of course. Oh, gosh. But <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to start in an unusual way, which is to thank you. To thank you on all sorts of levels. Firstly, for your incredible art and bringing what you've called the, the humble pot into the spotlight by putting together trauma and beauty in a form that holds it instead of hiding things. That's something that's very special that your art does. And secondly, for being willing, as part of being that artist, to be willing to be open about the politics of sexuality, the link between trauma and sexuality and art and life that's given... Huge numbers of people their dignity back, and thirdly, for being willing to be part of this conversation and bringing Claire along as a, which is also a political act as well as an identity act.
1: Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, it didn't feel like a political act walking up a Street, but uh, <laughs> in, in, I think that there was a lot of post-match trauma about, perhaps. And I, I don't know if I was necessarily seen as a, a healing shaman. <laughs>
0: But I'm I'm pretty sure you get quite a lot of correspondence and thanks. I've certainly had it um, from from clients I've worked with. In fact, I first I first um, heard about you as opposed to your art um, from a men's group where one man finally came to a group session in women's clothes, saying, I haven't been able to until that posh man (laughs) came out in a wonderful (laughs) frock. And so that you've actually, with your art and with your appearance, have allowed people to be open about themselves.
1: That's good. I mean, I certainly thought that when I dressed up to, to accept the prize and all the publicity around it. Because I suppose you know, that I, was, I, had a, I, I had a kind of transition period where I used to kind of uh, dress up occasionally if I thought it was appropriate. And then a long, you know, when the Turner Prize was happening, I thought, well, I've got this far by wearing a dress. It's, it, would be, it would almost be illogical not to dress up for that. And, you know, because people say, why isn't he dressed up? You know, <laughs> and, so, and so I thought, you know, I had to do it. So in, in a way, I know I've been pleasantly surprised by the reaction to it all. and very pleased that it has had that kind of political side to it, which I don't make a big deal out of it, but I'm very aware that by uh, putting myself in the public spotlight and not making a big thing of it, in a way, in, you know, in terms of... I mean, of course, it's very uh, noticeable, but I don't sort of make out that I am some kind of campaigner. You know, and I don't kind of say, oh, by the way, have you noticed I'm wearing a dress? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> because I believe in equal rights for all people who are just dressed a bit ridiculously, you know. And I, and, I, and I think it's very tricky for, you know, when you're a young... What I want to say, in a way, is that uh, when you're 14 and, you've got, and you're facing puberty and, and the, your sexuality or whatever is coming to the fore, um, it can feel like, you know, as a transvestite, it can feel like almost you are uh, sexually motivated to, to dress like a clown, because, you know, a man dresses as a woman, no matter how much dignity we can bring to it and, and uh, say it's okay to do it, there is something quite funny about it, you know, I find. And I think most people find, it, you know, there isn't... It's, it's a long tradition. You go, go right back in the history of art. A man in a dress is cue laughter. Hmm. And so there you are, young boy, you know, uh, and embarrassment is a fatal disease amongst the young, as we well know. And... Um, uh, they, uh, he's facing this desire to dress like a woman and maybe go out in public, and it is going to be ridiculous. For, you know, he is going to, to a certain extent, because when you're young, you haven't got the budget or the confidence mm-hmm. or the uh, the, the uh, um um or the uh, the skill to make, to look good quite often, and so uh, it can be very difficult thing to do. And yet there's this deep, you know, it's when your hormones and your sexuality is there, it's most powerful. So you're going to, you know, I was 15 when I first went out in the street dressed as a woman and I probably looked ridiculous, you know, but I took enormous risks because it was so adrenalizing. And I think that, um, you know, I understand that, uh, that thing. And so I suppose I'm saying, in a way, look, you're not going to die if people laugh at you. You know, you're not going to die if you. If you. If, and, and 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 the curious thing is, is the more confidence that you do it with, the less sort of hassle you get. You know, because it's like it's like that therapeutic thing where people say, you know, the man's crossing the uh, desert and the man come, and he, and he sees someone coming the other way and uh, he says to the man, "Oh, what are the people in the next town like?" And the man says, oh, how did you find the people in the last town? And the the man says, oh, they were nice. And he says, oh, you'll love the people in the next town then. And I think that's the way that a lot of trannies, they kind of say often, they say, oh, I was in this shop and this woman was really rude to me. And I want to say to them, well, how were you behaving? Mm. You know, how were you behaving? Because... I find if I go into a shop and, you know, and I'm dressed up and I sort of go, oh, hello, have you got this in my size And you just have a civil conversation with whoever's in it. You've probably made their day. They're working in a boring shop. You know, they want a bit of fun,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. But if you sort of skulk in there, like, we've got this in your size, skulk <laughs> you know, It does not, it's not a good look.
0: No, so it's, it's, it's been the openness while you haven't made it your political act, you're an artist and you happen to be this as well, and so it's been a quiet this that accompanies you, which is also loud, but in your book, um, and how many people here have read the book with, with, um, that's called um, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Girl, with Wendy Jones? Um, it, you make the very sort of important point that um, dressing, had you been in adult female clothes, there'd have been more nervousness or different res- negative responses, but by dressing in a girl's clothes, which you couldn't possibly be, it was more symbolic and therefore allowed the idealised girl child to be looked at.
1: Listen, it, 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 it wasn't by design. Like, like most of my ideas, you know, that I talk about in my work, it's racialization You know, I didn't sort of think, oh, how could I sort of s- soften the blow of being a public <laughs> tranny, um, because. You know, I sort of started changing the way I dressed. I mean, until about uh, 1999, 1998, 1999, I dressed pretty much as an adult woman on the whole. And it wasn't until I I, I kind of realised... I suddenly... I think I bought a bridesmaid's dress that I really liked That really sort of did something for me in a big way. In inverted commas. And... um, uh, so I sort of that's I see those sort of this sort of look I suppose is like the crack cocaine of cross dressing. You know, it's the kind of it's the kind of it's the, it's the undiluted femininity of it I suppose. But the problem is when you dress up as a grown-up woman, it often is, it, it kind of swivels around the idea of deception. You know, that I'm trying to look like something I'm not. Hmm. Whereas me nowadays, I'm me in a dress. I don't have any false bits, unless I'm making a kind of, you know, point of them. <laughs> and um, uh, so that deception is often what causes the difficulty. You know, we got a lot of trannies, um, they complain about their wives uh, you know, give, having a bad reaction when they found out they were transvestites. Often, I think it's actually a bad re- reaction having been deceived about them being transvestites. And the fact, you know, that they, that they that I like to put wear them in clothes, is almost here and there, the, the they could have been kind of keeping their football fandom a secret, you know, and, and they might have been annoyed. Oh, that's where you've been all this time, on Saturday afternoons. <laughs> so, um... That for me, you know, it was just a happy accident that I happened to be wearing dresses where you could practically see that I was a man dressed in a, as a woman from an aeroplane that was passing by. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, it, it, it's not going to cause... Um, there is not that kind of thing. It's not that kind of feeling of, oh look at that rather tall woman, you know, thing mm-hmm. that goes on sometimes. And because I suppose, as particularly men, they might feel threatened from that, but you were trying to sort of... Lure them or something. I don't know. I, maybe that's a, a cliche. I don't know.
0: In the in the book, you also make clear that you you did start therapy, and obviously, with the therapist's wife, you've also got that in a background, uh, pretty strongly in your background. Were you worried that? you were going to be misperceived in therapy, that your art would be, or that your dressing as a female would be
1: misperceived. and By the therapist? Yes,
0: and that the process would be destructive for you.
1: Um, God, that's not a thing I've ever thought before, really. I never worried. I thought, oh, they're a therapist. I suppose I was very trusting. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, they're therapists. They understand about these things. And so uh, I just sort of... Uh, um, I didn't. Make, you know, I didn't assume, I just assumed that they knew the nuts and bolts of the business. You know, that, that of course, every everybody is a, th- a tranny or a heterosexual or whatever in their own way. You know, there's no kind of one way to be. You know, I think that that's something that often needs clearing up. You know, when if you're if you're a gay man, you're not like all the other gay men. You're your sort of gay man or whatever. And so if you're a tranny, you're you know, and, and, and we we're, we're all given a different kind of. Um, set of counters, if you like, for what, what, for what makes up our sexuality. Um, so I thought that, you know, if I'm going to go to therapy, I'm going to be investigating wh- who I am. And that, you know, so therefore, if that part of that is being a tranny, then that, and that's what, exactly what happened. You know, it came out in that uh, my particular, you know, my, the root of which I become a tranny, I suppose, it, we, we kind of thrashed it out. And that was interesting, you know.
0: Because some people might have not been so lucky um, in that it's been, really, in the last decade, there's been more of an understanding that there isn't such a thing as sexuality. It's sexualities. And as you said, everybody's sexuality is unique and everybody has had different kinds of trauma in their life that have fashioned what sort of adult sexuality they've got and half of any adult sexuality has been laid down from childhood and, and earlier experiences. Um, but I think there are people that have also been victims of the period when therapy, like everything else, was embedded in a culture that was actually not wanting to see that everyone had their own unique journey.
1: Really? I'm shocked. <laughs>
0: So clearly, the, the, the audience. Um, I mean, well. if you look at the internet now,
1: people, I mean, if, if, if any therapist wants to investigate sexuality, the internet, porn. I mean, you know, if there's a niche, you know, if there's a niche, the tiniest, most obscure sexuality you could imagine. I mean, the other week I was giving a lecture about an exhibition that I'd done, and, and I designed a headscarf to go with it. And I said, oh, yes, headscarf or something, you know, silk headscarf that you tie like that. You know, I said, that was one of the first things that turned me on when I was young, headscarves. You know, my earliest picture of me with a tranny, as a tranny, is a picture of me with a headscarf on. And I jokingly said, oh, I bet there's websites to the audience. <laughs> I thought, I better go home and check. So I Googled it when I got home, headscarf fetish. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's more than one website, I tell you. And it's, it's absolutely, you know, I think that's brilliant. You know, that there is. I mean, people moan about porn on the net. But for those lonely people who don't know there's someone else in the world who's completely obsessed with silk squares... Yeah. They're, it's a good set. And a lot of them aren't just, you know, they're kind of uh, self... They're um, enthusiast-driven, shall I say. They're not exploitative. They're, quite often they're kind of like for people who just like silk squares and don't want to pay to look at other people wearing silk <laughs> squares. <laughs> it's so innocent. <laughs> <laughs> In,
0: in the book, again, we get quite a lot in, in a very dignified way of the first experiences you had with any material that made a difference to you. Making, making the little puppet out of a baby's booty. Oh, yes. Um, that was your f- first sense of having some, some sort of frisson of something that a- actually also linked to you. And it just felt rather painful that it was a baby's booty as well over... How Neglected You'd Been, because uh, um, Grayson is very um, light and dignified about it in the book over the level of trauma right through childhood, because in a way, it could have been a textbook for almost every kind of pain that anyone could have in adult life. But you, you, your aim wasn't to focus on that. It was to... Um, in a way, show the different things that have made the man and the artist.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to unpick, but I didn't want to kind of camp it up. I mean, um, it's interesting that you see I was making like... I mean, I suppose I see it like... You know, it's marvellous that children have a sort of survival mechanism that kicks in, that kind of uh, somehow deals with what's going on in their world, which they assume as being normal and what everybody might be going through, you know and um, make make it into a positive very often you know it's things that happen that are frightening or um, humiliating when you're young they be, you know they become eroticized and very exciting in later life or something that is um, you need to run away from and you so they they create i mean i created an imaginary world to go into to mm-hmm. hide away in and that was my kind of uh, internal uh, escape uh, place i could escape to and even now, I, you know, my art, to a certain extent, is what I call it my internal shed, in that, you know, when I, when I kind of just want to kind of soothe myself in some way, I can always open my sketchbook and go do a bit of doodling or something like that, and that's a kind of soothing thing to do. And uh, I can remember when I, something went very wrong with one of my pots, and I was very sort of pissed off about it, and I couldn't go, because it was almost as if what that, that horrible incident had put a little sort of post-it note on the door of my internal shed saying, five months' work down the drain. <laughs> you know, yeah. So I got to the door and it was like, oh, I don't know if I want to go in there today. So it was quite a tough one, you know, when you've, when you've built that kind of edifice, that, uh, that if, it, if it doesn't all go well, um, it can be quite upsetting.
0: And in that period, which was really from 5 to 15, where you had those... Four imaginary worlds. The ruler of that world that we really must spend some time on was your teddy bear,
3: yeah. um,
0: Alan Measles, and named Alan after the boy next door. And at the point when you were ill and had measles, really loved crucial bear that saved your life. And um, since everybody here is likely to remember how much their own their own teddy bear mattered, it's often quite a shock when uh, people are at university to find how many of their fellow students have brought their bears with, but their bears remain precious. But your bear really took on a much bigger survival
1: meaning. Well, he was the sort of benign dictator, if you like, of my imaginary world, and I was his bodyguard. And I I found, until I was in therapy, I didn't really question that. I just sort of thought, but then I suddenly thought, Bodyguard, that's a really <laughs> weird role to assign to yourself <laughs> as, a, as a child, you know. But that was what I was. And I suppose what it was, like, I freighted him with sort of my positive male attributes, to a certain extent. I kind of parked them with him. And I, for whatever reason, whether they were unhelpful in the situation I was in, or whether I just sort of... Um, uh, couldn't face them or whatever. I don't know. But I parked them with him. And so there he was. He was sort of skipping along, being this sort of perfect version of a kind of father, I suppose, sort of surrogate father. And he, you know, he never lost a motor race. He always, he, you know, many, many dogfights, shot down many times, but never, never killed. You know, he was that sort of, he was a sort of superhero. In, you know, he was just a really ordinary sort of, he's not a glamorous teddy, like a stife or anything. And... Um, So, and he was the only artefact I've managed to save from my childhood, because I went through a few moves in my teenage years that were a bit kind of chaotic, and um, so he is this kind of relic of that world, and a kind of portal, if you like, Hmm. into my imaginary universe. And so when I was recently, in a, about five or six years ago, I had an exhibition in Japan, which was always the first place. When I went international, it was always the first place I really wanted to go to Japan. I always had a big interest in it. And um, uh, I called my exhibition My Civilization" because I wanted the idea of me going into Japan and presenting them with, like, a foreign culture, which was a, of one, me. And I thought, well, I better give them a god because, you know, cultures, they always have a god. So I thought, Alan Measles, it was an obvious one. <laughs> and at the time, it was a bit of a joke, you know, and I thought, that's quite funny. And, but the, if anybody that's creative here knows that often, the first time you have an idea that might be a major part of your oeuvre or whatever, it can seem a bit absurd. That's almost by definition, a new idea often seems absurd. So I thought, Alan Measles, yeah. Uh, OK, I'll go with it. I run with it. So I made several artworks about Alan Measles as a various sorts of god. I made an Islamic Alan and a Shinto Alan and a Buddhist Alan and... You know, Christian Allen and stuff like that. Because, you know, most religions, they overlap and they supplant each other in layers. You know, most va- religious sites in the world are built on other religious sites. And so I thought, Allen, yeah, he needs the sort of support of all big world religions. Anyway. <laughs> and anyway, it's, keep, it's kept on running, this idea. You know, now I usually have two or three artworks in each show about, um, about him. And um, I thought the time had come when he needed to go out into the world. And I thought he needed, like, a Pope-mobile. You know, because the Pope... <laughs> you know, he famously has that white car with the big windows around. So I thought Alan Mieser needs a Pope-mobile. So uh, this, this last couple of years, I've been working with a custom motorcycle uh, builder, and he's built me, it's almost complete now, uh, a special motorcycle, which I will ride as his bodyguard, of course, in my oh. special uniform. And he will be riding and a little shrine on the back. And I thought it would be like... Because I'm very interested in pilgrimage as well. So I thought, well, Alamizos, he's not well famous yet. (laughs) He will have to go out to them. So the pilgrimage is kind of in reverse. And I I thought, where do I want to go? Well, his enemy always in my imaginary world were the Germans. Poignant moment for (laughs) us today. Loaded, a loaded image. Because <laughs> right, yeah. when I was a child, you know, that was you know, people talked about the war all the time. Because are my parents' generation? You know, they were involved. Um, so uh, I thought, well, yeah, he needs to go to Germany to make peace. You know, so I planned I planned this trip to you know quite a while ago that I would ride this motorcycle with Alan to Germany, which I'm going to do in September, on a, to a series of cultural and and meaningful places, and and then the. What does the Pope do? Who happens to be from Bavaria? The Pope, as we know, he's coming over here at the same time. <laughs> so we're kind of doing a cultural exchange. <laughs> it could, I mean, the Pope couldn't have worked it better. So me and the so Means and the Pope are doing a cultural exchange this September, uh, and uh, I hope it's very successful. <laughs> and all the wounds and clichés of, you know, the Second World War, I hope will evaporate. <laughs>
0: Well, one of the rather w- wickedly interesting things that you've written is that um, forgiveness is your best method of revenge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's sort of true, isn't it? It's sort of... Um, because uh, someone once said that vengeance was uh, swallowing poison and hoping the other person would die. <laughs> yeah. because, you know, being angry about stuff. I mean, I, I used to be much angrier than I am. I mean, my wife will attest that I still have a temper, but... Um, it used to be so much worse, so much worse. And uh, it used to, I, now if I get angry, I feel it poisons me for the rest of the day, like some drug. It's horrible. Mm. So I try not to get too cross. Though I, I keep a low-level cross. I mean, that's one of the great things about therapy, actually. It teaches you to, be, to sort of spot the low-level versions of all the things. You know, it, it's like, it's like when, you're, when you're young, it's like being an American. Everything's very extreme, mm. you know. It's like you're really angry or really sad, you know. Um, but, you know, you start to learn that happiness is actually like this, bump, 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 bump. It's not that dramatic. And, uh, you know, you get a little bit angry and you spot... And I, I really admire people who can catch their anger almost as the first little green shoot of it comes out, you know, and then go, oh, I don't know if I like that, rather than waiting for it to become a great big thorny bush, which they then have to hack down with an axe, you know.
0: But then some people are lucky over not having had to cope with as much anger directed at them when little as you did and although that's something you, you just write about very briefly, um, but the level of physical violence you went through from your, from your stepfather and the emotional abuse you went through in, in all the homes you were in. Um, you can read in, in, in that book, which, which is written, as I said, in, with a very dignified but open way, that, um, that Grayson had the horrendous position as a five-year-old of having his father say, who do you want to live with when his parents divorced over his mother's infidelity? Um, and a five-year-old with a three-year-old sister in tow being expected to answer a thing like that. Yeah. And then meeting violence from the stepfather and then not seeing your father for years. And then when you meet up with him again and a new stepmother, you are really brutally treated by her, shamed by her. She was a bit
1: bonkers as well, Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, in a way, there you are being light about your moods and tempers. When, in fact, it's no, it's no virtue when someone's been lucky to have parents that are only ever so often cross and stays calm. It's far more of a tribute to what you've done when you've had that level of noise around you and you've dealt with your temper. Yes, thanks to therapy, I think. There we are. <laughs> what an but It is. And my wife, is. of
1: course. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I, I do make light of it because I suppose uh, I don't want to go into some horrible misery me- memoir cliche and having been on a journey and all that. You know, mm. in a way, it's, it, 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 people have lots of people have lots of shit to deal with, mm. and you know, yeah, but it was tricky. But it, there's, you know, I dealt with it.
0: So without without the art, no one would have necessarily known of this beyond the, the, your group of friends. But it's the the art and suddenly the Turner Prize propelling you into something very different nationally, has that made it harder to do the private work of the
1: artist? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to moan, you know, because it's, you know, about being successful. (coughs) But I think that, you know, because, you know, I don't want to kind of say, oh, you know, I'm working at the coalface of culture and it's all hideous. But... um, uh, a tricky thing is the fact that you know, my art particularly, I, it's, it's related very much to why I like outsider art and sorry, prisoner art and things like that and sort of spontaneous forms of, of art very much because they're done for the person often with no thought of showing anybody else that. And that relates to my kind of interior world when I was a child and that was how I made art in a way. And yet now, of course, I, you know, I have been a practising artist for uh, nearly 30 years now. And so, um, I have to be aware that I am operating in a culture with an audience and a media, and dealing with that is part of the job. You can't pretend that you're working in a shed with, just for yourself and then go and have an exhibition at the Hayward Gallery, mm. you know. So, uh, but that, the downside of that is that you, you, I feel often that I'm working with sort of at someone looking over my shoulder all the time and those kind of free and easy concerns that you want to, you know, because you want to have a kind of relaxed fluency around your work and be very kind of. But if you suddenly think, you know, if they, like you say, I have an absurd idea, like, oh, I'll make Alan Mises into my god. You suddenly think, how's that going to go down with the people out there, you know? Right.
2: And it's sort of. A, yeah. And, and it, what's,
1: it's quite interesting, actually, is that this kind of event is very useful to me because I can gauge to a certain extent how those sort of ideas might go down. You know, it's quite nice to talk about my motorbike before it's even gone out into the world. It seems to be a, to be a murmur a of approval. <laughs> like it so like, um, But like, But it's... Um, yeah, working in public is, is uh, odd. But, but... I think the tr- one of the problems was that Picasso... For instance, I was at that Picasso exhibition at the Gargosian Gallery down near King's Cross the other day. And I was thinking about the fact that he made a really sort of tough template for artists to work to because he was so prolific and so energetic. And he, he made this sort of cliche idea of what it is to be an artist, this sort of impassioned Mediterranean person who just churn out art and have sex and then go to a left bank cafe and be left wing and all those <laughs> kind of things. You know? And uh, that's what an artist is like. I think people still think that's what artists are like, mm. <laughs> you know, and I think, mm, no, they're not. Some of them are like, scritch, scritch, scritch. Mm, I'm only doing two pieces this year, you know, and I'm really shy. And so they're not all like that, and I think that, that, that can be a problem, but I think that people want larger midlife characters, because one of the ways that we look at art is the narrative that it's a part of. And I suppose that's why I try to do things like uh, bring in my stories into my work, is because we' are very engaged by narratives. You know, if, we, if you just present art uh, nowadays, if you just wandered around an art gallery with no labels, you know who it was by or when it was made, it's quite tricky, especially mm. contemporary art so i quite I quite like to have it I think a narrative is quite important. it's like when I see the terpie shortlist these years, I kind of go, I don't know who they are, so I find it hard to get rooting for them.
0: You said you didn't call yourself a potter, you called yourself an artist, um, but in choosing the in choosing pots and talking about the humble pot um why
1: humble yeah, humble is a good word because I think that. Even though I'm a inveterate show-off, um, I think there. You know, I do try. I think there's something monkish about being an artist that I would like to have. Now, on the side of my motorbike, you know, it, you know and it's a kind of ironic joke. But on my motorbike, on the tank, it's got humility in great big letters on one side, <laughs> and patience on the other side, yeah. in great big pink <laughs> 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 writing. And, um, uh, because I think that, you know, in the face of one's art, the best stuff often comes when you're not, you're, trying to kind of, you're not trying to write the reviews and work backwards. It's kind of, I'm just doing this because I'm quite enjoying it and I want it to be done as well as it needs to be done. And it's sort of squitch, 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 little monk in his little cell working away. And I think that's a good frame of mind for me to be in. And I think pots are nice because um, they're quite a rubbish form of communication in that you know they, they don't reproduce very well because they tend to be round <laughs> and uh, they're small and so and they're fragile so they're not very good for disseminating information which is sort of what I'm the business of I suppose so they're quite humble so just by the very nature of a part it brings people to it it's sort of like ooh, you know and and and, and it's uh, seen as a I suppose a, a second class activity being by certain people you know and that for me was tr- was attractive because mm-hmm. it wasn't. Because the art world in the twentieth century, you know, it's co opted many, many, many ideas. You know, Duchamp started off the twentieth century, he said, Oh, anything can be art, and by the end of this century artists will just be people who point at things. Mm. That's art. Mm. And you know, that that was an incredibly influential thing to do, and it opened a whole Pandora's box of stuff. And the problem is now, of course, people are still doing that, but what they're pointing at usually is quite rubbish. Because you know, mm-hmm. when, he, when he first did that, it was like, amazing, mm-hmm. wow, what an idea. And now it's like... You know, so it's, tr- it, it, it's a tricky situation. And so, But what was interesting to me was, there were certain things that still weren't being pointed at. And mm-hmm. Pops was one of them. You know, it, pop was sort of like... It was like the kind of next-door... It was like the kind of pretentious next-door neighbour that really, really wanted to be art. They say, well, pick me, point at me, point at me, I want to be mm-hmm. art. And they were going, no, 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 you're decorative arts, be happy with that.
0: Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so that was the Cinderella that you've lifted out.
1: Yeah, I don't know, I mean, I think when people say, does this mean that ceramics will be more accepted in the art world? I kind of said, well, no, it means Grayson Perry is going to be more accepted <laughs> in the art world. But I, curiously, I do. when I went around to Basel Art Fair the other week, um, I saw quite a few pots and, and ceramic things, more than I had done for a while. But I wouldn't say it's like, a, a, beware the trend. There's no such thing now as movements and avant-garde and cutting edges. I don't believe in any of that, I think. So, you know, just some people quite maybe feel they've given them permission to use ceramics, or maybe they were anyway. Maybe the gallery owners said, oh, Grayson Perry's done well can make some money out of this, <laughs> so I don't know.
0: And the other areas of art you're interested in and have already been doing, like the silk that's... At, is it at the V&A?
1: Oh, the, the quilt.
0: Ah, yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. Curiously, I'm in four exhibitions at the moment uh, in London. I'm in the, uh, the V&A with the quilts. I'm at the British Library with a map. I'm at the uh, Tate Britain with a drawing, I think. And I'm in the Royal Academy with a pot. Wow! So I'm multi-multi-platformed, uh, as they yeah. say in the modern world.
0: Multi-platform. And Alan Measles,
1: by the way, he is—he's he, on Twitter.
0: Uh, yes. He started.
1: He's not—he's not been most very politic, but he has his little posterous blog. He puts out words of wisdom every week. Yeah, he sounds like at the moment he sounds like a yeah, Baltimore gangster, though, because I've been working through the wire. So he does tend to have a slightly gangsterish twang. Actually, I want him to sound. Alan was really what I want him to sound is kind of like a streetwise kind of Dalai Lama. <laughs> <laughs>
2: he's
1: working on it. It's working. So bear with him.
0: And the other, you you weren't so keen on photography at the
1: moment. Well, it's just this thing of, you know. I mean, I'm very, I mean, I dress like this. I can't complain that people want to take my photo. But I can complain that the 50th person at one party wants to take my photo. You know, and, does. and I said to some people the other day, I said, don't take a photo. Let's have a conversation. You know? <laughs> because it's like, I have this thing that I think that we live in this sort of age where it's obsessed with recording and maybe forgetting to actually look. Because I wonder if they're ever going to look at those photographs. I mean, if they, I see them in museums going around <laughs> taking photographs of everything. And I just wonder if they're ever going to look at them. And I, and I think that uh, maybe I'm kind of uh, um, fetishising a kind of old-fashioned... Old I tend to do this a lot. I, you know, in, in some ways, my kind of aesthetics was sort of pre-war almost, I think. But mm. I, th- I do think that there is a sort of process where we... You know, as human beings, we've evolved, we look at stuff, it goes in, we filter it, and then we put it out. And I I just wonder what all of this recording and this sort of everything is seen is mediated by a digital screen whether it's going to affect that kind of filtering through process of what goes in. Because one of the most important things you can do is look, 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 look at stuff, look at books, look at museums, you know, all this, take it all in, feed yourself constantly. And I just wonder if if we're just doing it always through this little sort of digi portal whether it's going to affect. Will come out because it's the modern world and it'll come out in a different way and it'll be fine and the children are lovely and they're also creative.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And how do you feel about the the sort of artists that are working away that haven't yet uh, uh, achieved the recognition they'd like, that are in that um, land where, whether it's with paintings, pots, whatever, no one is yet looking, and how hard it is is, to get to the position of, of actually being seen and valued? I think it's
1: tricky and most of them won't, yeah. that's, that's tough Yeah, uh, and I think the art colleges, you know, they, they, because they, they get paid per bum on sea now, they kind of shelve people in and, and I think one of the best things they could teach at art college would be less people, but mm-hmm. um, that may be, you know, maybe that's unfair, maybe it's good that a lot of people are exposed, because let's face it, it's better than going to military college. <laughs> you know, and it may be a lot, it's good that people will be exposed to the sensibility of an art college because it's very, you know, it has a certain way of thinking that you tend to pick up by osmosis when you go to college and you meet, you know, interesting people. So that, maybe that's a good thing. But whether you kind of can hold on to an idea, because a lot of artists, art students, I feel sometimes, they kind of, are they, do they want to make art or do they want to be artists? Because I think they're different. You know, if you want to make art and you happen to art college, which is how I kind of, you know, I like drawing, so I went to art college. Mm. I didn't have an idea of, oh, I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to be like dot, dot, dot. I didn't even really know the names of any contemporary artists when I went to college. So um, I think that it's tough because there's such a crowded cultural landscape now. And I've been, you know, being a transvestite has been very good for me. You know, you can trivialise PR But, you know, and and people say, oh, you're the Tranny Potter. At least I've got, you know, I've got a calling card to a certain extent. Mm. It's handy. It might not be the most dignified one always, but, you know, it's a foot in the door. I can say I'm a Tranny Potter. Ah, yeah, but I'm the motorbike-riding god bodyguard as well. (laughs) You know, whatever. Anyway, so uh, it is tough, but I think that PR is now part of publicity... Marketing, media is part of being an artist in any way. You know, whether you're a music writer or whatever, it just you just got to deal with it because we're in a crowded cultural landscape. You know, we're all becoming middle class. Everybody wants. You know, most cultural events now, most people want to be on the stage or on the wall rather than being in the audience. I have a feeling, and I think that's fine. But it's it's a tough. You know, uh, I'm fifty. I didn't start. You know, I didn't earn. Living until I was 37 to maybe 38, something like that. You know, I didn't really start kicking in to to, to quite a nice living until after well after that, well after the Turner Prize. So it's like it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's another danger of the push button revolution is that people think that it will happen overnight because they played a video game, they played Art Career 10 or whatever (laughs) they were playing on Xbox, (laughs) and it it happened really quick. And so, uh, you know, I do worry about delay, gratification. I mean, there's a lot of talk now. It's quite interesting that, there, that the, what, what the uh, digital revolution has done it has brought the conversation round to what is a real experience. Because, you know, people are going to festivals more now. They want to come to events like this, which is great. They want to make things with their hands. And whether it's just window dressing for kind of actually... Because the big weapon that we are against as an artist always is convenience because it's like, people, you know, we're basically lazy, and so you will always say, no, I don't want to knit it, I'm just going to go in the shop and buy one, you know, or whatever, so it's tricky.
0: And on the economics of it, with the huge change from the Turner Prize, has that been, has that been straightforward for you, that suddenly the price of everything you do has, it's rocketed, or is it, I mean, are you able to straightforwardly enjoy that, or does it come with complications for you?
1: Um, at first, I suppose it could be quite... Dis- I mean, uh, my prices went up fairly incrementally for a long, long time, but then they, uh, I suppose if, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm not that expensive artist compared to a lot of the other well-known YBA-type people. Um, but uh, what I like having money for is ploughing back into my work. Yeah. That's where I spend my money. Apart from dresses, which are relatively inexpensive. But uh, I, I, you know, like the motorbike project I'm doing, and I'm doing, making a big sculpture at the moment, There's things like the tapestry, you know, they, these are big things that need big outlays on, um, uh, in production costs to make. And so that's the great joy to me. And I'm working up to building a temple, but I haven't got there yet. So I need, you know, I need maybe two or three more exhibitions along the way. I'll get enough to sort of finance my own temple, because then I want to build a temple. Because I'd like to make a real permanent place where people get to go for their marriage or something, else, you know, <laughs> civil partnership, funeral. But a non demon you know, it's like the kind of Church of Alan. Because if Alan has a queen, it's like you can all have your own Alan. You know, it's kind of Alan is, Alan is, you know, Alan is for you. He's the god of doubt.
0: <laughs> well, with, you, with you mentioning marriage then, the last question before we, we open up for, for, for any comments or questions people want to ask um, is, I know, you, uh, I know you really liked um, Philippa's book because there you were waving it on the book programme on Sky Arts. Were you surprised that she wanted to do a therapy book that was a visual one, that was an illustri- that was all being told through excellent visuals?
1: Well, she, Philippa, I met her when she was at art college. Right. So we've always had, you know, right. shared that. And so, and um, she's always, she learned to read, as far, as far as I, she'll tell me off if I get this wrong, but um, uh, she learned to read with uh, Asterix comics. right. So she's always been steeped in the kind of graphic novel tradition and, and you know, things like Posy Simmons and things like that. And uh, I think it's also, it, it, in, the, in the modern world, it's like, again thinking about... Uh, how to communicate, you know. In, art, in this country, uh, graphic novels are perhaps still poo-pooed a bit, you know, and seen as because we have a very, very strong literary tradition in this country. But in other countries like France and Japan, you know, they are really, its a really serious business. And you know, it's, it's, it, once you, she started researching all these things, you know, it's amazing how seriously and how uh, you know. She went to a conference the other day of the medical narrative in graphic novels, you know, and there was a whole conference about it. Mm. So it's like, uh, I think and it's, it's a, a good way, and it really suits the kind of multi-layered narrative because you can actually show people what, you know, it's very clear what people are thinking, what people are saying, how they're looking, and then the notes as well. So it's a good way of doing that.
2: Now,
0: at St George's Hospital in, in the disability department, we had a whole Books Without Words series for working as well with people with severe and profound intellectual disabilities who were thrilled to have a book to read because there was a narrative sequence, whether it was about going to the doctor, dentist, things that need explaining, where people can't read the leaflets, as well as sort of painful things, going to court cases, dealing with abuse, and the pride at having read a book We we sort of can forget the beauty of holding that that texture and meaning concretely as well.
1: My daughter, you know, when she's very, she she knew that books were things you were meant to kind of do this, you know. But of course they're reading, and it's like you sometimes think that this is what you're meant to do. You look at a book, you look at a book, you know. It's like like, there is a pride in that. It's like I'm looking at a book, and it's
0: good. Yes, and the grasp. the craftsman pleasure over doing the work you do—that there's the aesthetic in it, the decorating part, and this, the tools and the craft in it as well. The combination of all those things—that there's in a, some in, in the book. pots, in, oh, in the pot. pots and the books—that the, there's something you're hold that you can hold as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, what will happen with the you know iPad? I don't know. Whether people have that or not, will they, will it, I was thinking. You know, what happens when it comes like, like afterwards? You know, when it comes to signing, what happens with an iPad? Do I get out a kind of a nail file? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you, you're warned for after the question bit when you come to get uh, Grayson's signature, um, not to take pictures of him with your iPhones. <laughs> um, right, we are open for questions, thoughts, comments. Um, if we're not spotting you because of the lighting, please... There's
4: please, a man over
3: yeah.
4: there. Oh. I can see. Uh, hi, here. Hello. Uh, thanks for the very thought-provoking conversation. and I really enjoyed it, actually. And, um, you mentioned early in your life that you, um, you would dress up when yes. you felt it was appropriate. So I was wondering when did you feel that it would be appropriate for you to dress up and also, what uh, were you hoping to evoke or achieve in a way? Because you, at some point you said um, if people laughed at you, you wouldn't die. So, uh, and then uh, towards the end of your conversation, you, when you talked about the pictures, you said that you were hoping that people, instead of just looking at the picture, would come and talk to you. So I was wondering whether you were hoping to, um, that people would talk to you as opposed to laugh at you when you dressed up early. Is this something that um, um, you think you could elaborate on a bit? Do you think?
1: Oh, um, oh, I hope I've got this. Um, I mean, I started dressing when I was uh, maybe 13, and uh, I don't know if I had a kind of an agenda. You know, it was something that really spontaneously happening. I never knew that there was such a thing as transvestites. So I just thought, you know, I, I was having a fantasy of... Uh, I was in a prisoner war camp, probably with Alan Measles. I can't remember. Oh. Oh. And um, <laughs> uh, the guards were, thought they would humiliate the prisoners a bit more by making them dress in women's clothes. And it was just like one of those thoughts that kind of swirled around my head. And, uh, ooh, I, you know, that turned me on, that thought. So the next day, I thought, I'll try it out for real. You know, I made that artistic bridge that, you know, people make from fantasy to reality. Not always a great bridge to make, I you know, depending on what, how dark your thoughts are. Um, but, uh, so, I didn't really have, like, an, an agenda for... Um, I didn't think about how, not consciously, because I was operating totally between my kind of uh, unconscious and just my kind of um, conscious thoughts. I didn't have a word for anything what I was doing. I just did it. And... Until maybe a couple of years later, when I read in a newspaper there was such a thing as transvestites, I knew I thought, "Oh, that's what I am." What a shock! So I didn't have a feeling that, you know, I would have a, get a certain reaction, and, I, and and any and any feelings I have about that, even to this day, are assumptions and rationalizations. I mean, when I you know I joke to people that you know I could easily pull when I'm dressed like this. Because uh, you'll be surprised, you know, with people, I'm a man with his defenses down, you know, that can be attractive to certain people. Uh, uh, but uh, I don't really um, assume that I have a certain impact. Is that what you were asking me about? I was wondering what were
4: you, what were you hoping to achieve to evoke?
1: Hoping, I'm not hoping, I do it for myself pretty expectation, much. expectation, in a way. Sorry? What was the expectation?
4: Was, well, when I dressed mine.
1: up first. When well, I very, very first dressed up. Oh, God. That's, that's, you're talking 1975. Um, uh, ooh, uh.
0: There's something about that for, for a lot of people when they first do it's, it's it's a drivenness that's got terror in it, expectancy of humiliation, longing for it, fear of it. It's not about being seen and being appreciated. It's got a lot of pain in it for many people over those first forays. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, and I
1: think that a lot of trannies will talk about, you know, that they uh, want to be seen as real real women, but I've got a feeling a lot of it that is sort of over-rationalisation of it. Mm. And if they really go deeper, it's about... the. It's about the, the the feelings that they're somehow unconsciously identifying with, and I think one of the principal things, if you like, is that the way we bring up boys and girls is that a boy, a girl will often be appreciated for how she looks, just just with that just oh don't you look beautiful, but a boy is often appreciated for what he does, and so maybe there's a bit unconsciously in all boys and maybe more in boys like me or something, I don't know, this might be a complete load of tosh, but um, that hankers after that unequivocal... Unjudgmental attention, you know, that just says, Oh, you look great. You know, how often do we say to our little boy children, no, You look just great? Because we, we all fall into cl- cliches. I mean, like, they've done experiments with babies where they give a kind of, you know, an, uh, a, a boy baby dressed up as a girl or they, even an androgynous baby and they say, You know, they give it to parents, people, t- look after this baby for a while. And they will, even as babies, they will treat the two, what they assume to be a boy or a girl, in different ways. Mm. This is true, isn't it? Mm. Because we have we have in we have encultured you know, ways of dealing with gender. Even when you know a baby, is, they, they're a boy and a girl baby, apart from a few technical bits around the nappy changing, they're pretty much the same. You know, and so I think thanks, that you know. That, anyway, I don't know if I'm going on too much about this, but um, may I dress up just to get lots of attention? <laughs>
0: Well, you were, you were I- invisible you weren't seen by your family at all
1: yeah, it took
0: think... later didn't it and your intelligence with your mother wanting you to go to grammar school it was, you were recognised a lot later for what skills you had mm. and there was pride in your art but you weren't seen as a person with feelings
1: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> Another point. Um, I just
5: wanted to ask a question that kind of leads on from that, which was that um, I was just interested in if, Grayson, if you always linked the performative aspect of your work to sexuality. Because um, it just sort of seems to me that, you know, that's obviously one very clear link, but then there's also this kind of tradition of actual performance. And I suppose I was just thinking about my own experience, which is I'm half Indian, but people tend to think that I'm not. So if I ever put on a sari... I get this most incredible sort of different reaction from people, including people saying things like, you know, take off the sari, or, you know, have that literally been stopped on the street by an Indian man? Why are you wearing Indian clothes? Anyway, I could go on and on about it. But so for me, I, li- I, link perform- I don't link that performance element. And I also am a performer in my work. I don't necessarily always link it with sexuality. And I can... S- so I was just really interested in your sort of thoughts on that, if...
1: I mean, I, I, I'm not a performer. I'm an artist. In a way, I, I suppose things meld together. I don't together. mean
5: you're a performer. I mean, there's a performative element, if you like, to it, or a kind of...
1: I don't know. I mean, because um, it's, it's very tricky, because I can understand what you're talking about, is because it's how people see it. You know, and I think that, uh, you know, a man dressed on the stage is a drag act. You know, and uh, so people have their kind of cliche idea about w- what I am like. And that's you know understandable. I can you know that's that's the, what's in the culture. Um, but I am you know an artist, and I'm a tranny, and I've found it useful in, when I appear in public to be a, to wear a dress. You know up until you know now, I don't have the time now, but I used to do a lot of leisure training. You know where I would just dress up and go off for myself. I'd go to the shops or go to a museum dressed up because I'd enjoyed that. But now you know I tend to do it for work more. It gets sucked in. But yeah. it, I don't know if it's a performance. Get, you're not really getting... If I was performing, I'd probably I'd be putting on a funny voice or something. I don't know. Well,
5: I suppose it comes down to how other people see you, don't
0: they? And yeah. It becomes quite complicated. We've got someone at the back.
1: Um, Did that answer your question, anyway?
3: No. Can, I, can I ask a question about... I mean, I'm just, it may follow the previous uh, question about uh, performance. Because watching the two of you on the stage reminded me of a television programme by an Australian comedian. I think she was called, or he was called, Edna Everidge. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> uh, who uh, used to sit on the stage in a very glamorous dress and uh, with, with a woman next to him called Madge. And...
1: Where's this going? This long insult.
3: No, it's not going in as an insult. I just wanted to... I found this a very interesting talk, but it did remind me of... That, yeah, uh, because obviously Valerie Sinison has been extremely articulate and, uh, and uh, interesting. But of course, Madge in the uh, program never said, never said one word. And I always wondered why Edna Everidge had brought Madge onto the uh, stage with him. And... Uh, <laughs> The question I'm wanting to know, I, and as as you were talking, you you had said that you were very angry, and I I wondered because I often used to think that Edna Everidge m- might have been, you know, why on earth would he bring Madge onto the stage with him if not to downgrade her as a real woman, and she he was the you know, the most more, most glamorous woman you could imagine, and yet Madge, the real woman, was very down at heart, couldn't didn't say one word. And I'm just wondering if that's something to do with the anger that you mentioned a bit earlier in, uh, in the talk, that there's some.
1: Nothing to you're do with that at all. talking Valerie, about of course. Edna Average, and I was talking about me. No, but, but I there's, think I there's. I don't something... think they're the same. I think you've got muddled up somewhere in the middle that you're talking about Edgar Average being, doing what she does, and I talked about I used to be very angry. So, how do you bring those two things together? Um, I think it
0: was coming to a, a sort of idea around transvesticism that that has been around in different therapeutic circles over the anger with the mother primarily that can be involved in it for some people. Um, is that what you were? Yes. That's what you were trying oh, to. All <laughs> 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 oh, right. <laughs> But that's n- but that that is not Grayson, as he said.
1: No, I've not brought my anger up here to inflict it on Valerie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we had another yes. We had another one near the back, one at the top, and then yes, we've got two down there.
6: Oh, we've got a queue building oh, hey, up at now. The top. Yes, hey, I just have a brief question about um, materials and your engagement with them. Uh, would you agree with the statement that pottery bridges the gap between painting and sculpture?
1: Uh, the pottery bridges the gap?
6: Pottery bridges the gap between painting and sculpture. Oh, no, I don't think it's that simple.
1: I think there's lots of artists that have you know made paintings that are sculptures and sculptures that are paintings. And, I, you know, it's like... I don't know if it's that rigid anymore, really. Anything goes now, I think. and You know, you could do... It's up to an artist to find the, you know, the niche that they want to uh, express themselves in. But I don't know. I'd, I'd it. No, I No, it doesn't, doesn't ring yeah. for me, that one. Sounds like some potters trying to justify their existence.
0: <laughs> We've got someone with the mic there. I'd,
5: I'd, I'd like to ask you um, Just about the Walthamstow, uh, Walthamstow tapestry. Yes, the, the tapestry what? that you had on, that was on uh, display at the Victoria Miro. <laughs> gallery. Um, how did you come to envisage that and to imagine it in the first place? What, the tapestry? Yes, the actual whole story of
1: it. I mean, I just um, think it's How did I start? Uh, well, secondly, I've done quite a few... Um,
5: how did it get made? Did you have to was do hands-on work yourself
1: on no, it? No, not at all. No, I did a very, very elaborate big drawing. It's, this, by the way, if anybody uh, saw it, um, it was a, a huge... Uh, tapestry 15 meters long so wider than this much probably almost as wide as this room actually uh, 15 meters uh, by three meters and it depicted the seven ages of man uh with branding so it was like a kind of uh, like a kind of um a journey a pilgrimage through life where all of these sort of emotional high points were branded to a certain extent and um I suppose I started because someone showed me this technology, which was digital weaving. And uh, it's a huge loom, it's in Belgium, and I suppose most of the time they produce reproductions of classical tapestries or paintings and quite kitsch things. But a few artists, like Chuck Close, the uh, American uh, photorealist painter, had used this. And a a friend of mine who I'd done prints with said, oh, this is fantastic technology. Uh, And so we did a sample, we said, yeah, I'm liking it. Because what was nice about it, because so many digital uh, delivery systems, uh, they have a deadness about them. You know, like if you look at, um, say, uh, CAD-CAM machining on uh, metal or uh, di- digital printing, that often there's a kind of deadness about them. They're very, very perfect and exact, but they don't have that kind of organic quality. But the weaving, because of the nature of weaving, and the, you know, the, how it works, this machine, I think, is that all the colours are in there all the same time, and the, the machine just brings it up to the surface... So you get this very thick, if you touch the tapestry, it's quite thick material. And uh, it has a kind of wobbliness, like you would want on your tapestries. So it looked like a proper bit of woven fabric, and I liked it. And you can do it vast. I mean, I stopped at 15 meters because we were running out of gallery. But, you know, you could go on forever with this thing. But, um, so, how I can see, so you start from the physical point, you know, I, 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 the, the, what the machine was capable of, how big the gallery was. And then I went to um, the idea of I wanted uh, a kind of journey, and I wanted a, like, a, like a, some kind of cycle of frescoes or something. And so I thought about, yeah, life, we'll do life. That's a big one, from birth to death. And, and then I thought, well, what's the, I always like a kind of uh, a conceptual theme, a kind of literary theme. And I thought, well, what's something that everybody will identify with? So I thought brands, because what's interesting about brands is that even without, even if you just have the word, and they're all just written in my handwriting all over the thing, not in their own logo or anything, even just the word has an emotional resonance, because they've all been implanted in our brains, You know, whether it's Marmite or Sony or Coca-Cola or Saga or whatever. You know, they, we've all got a little ping goes off in our brain, and I was interested in that. And so it was... The Wolframstow Tapestry is about the invasion of marketing as opposed to the invasion of the Normans. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was how I started that's how I got to be. It's
5: absolutely huge is it likely to be on display anywhere again anytime soon? I don't know
1: I don't know, I mean because it is so big is the problem is finding somewhere that's big enough to show it and I'd love to you know, it will be on display again yeah I'm sure.
0: Yes we uh, we have a woman near the back of the centre Yes,
6: hello Um, I just wanted to return again to the question of different interpretations of cross-dressing and um I, I've realized that in your interpretations of Grayson Perry, you emphasized the aspects of drivenness, of, of pain and trauma, Valerie. And I was thinking in relation to the response that Grayson was giving, um, it reminded me, and in fact in relation to the, the speaker near the front, um, that Judith Butler, who's a feminist philosopher who is very engaged with psychoanalysis, um, talks about cross-dressing as highlighting that there's nothing intrinsic or natural about gender, that gender is itself a performance, and you know that the possibilities um, of having shifting identifications are, are potentials for all of us. And I just wondered if you could comment on that, Grayson.)
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I think gender is... Ma- I mean, you know, I'll probably get shot down here, but I do think gender is mainly constructed. Because interestingly, there was a thing in the paper the other day about this. I think it was a Swedish couple who said they wouldn't say what gender their baby was. And that was an interesting, maybe cruel experiment. I don't know. But they, I think the baby was already three and they hadn't told anybody whether it was a boy or a girl. Gosh. And, uh, which I thought was interesting, but I just wondered, Ooh, how's that going to turn out? Um... Because uh, there was that guy. There was there was a case as well of the of the of the person who they 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 botched a circumcision, and so they brought up a boy as a girl as well, and that was quite odd. And 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 he kind of rebelled against it when he was like an adult. Um, So I'm not saying that gender is entirely constructed culturally and experientially as you go through life. Though I do think it's the most of it. That's my experience. Um, that I wouldn't be surprised if there were some aspects of it that are nature, you know, that are, you know, some aspects of, you know, men and women are different. I hate to, you know, they, they are. I have sand here as a testament to that. <laughs> I mean, transvestism for me, one of the things it is, is a symptom of sexism. Because it's the fact that we bring up, you know, that, that there is such a strong, definite, dramatic difference in the way we've brought up boys and girls and the opportunities emotionally and culturally and career-wise that are so different. That's what you know, historically has pr- pr- provoked cross-dressing. I mean, 150 years ago or, or longer, a lot, a lot of transvestites would have been women because they would have been trying to access the opportunities of men. And male cross-dressing would have been seen as a rather eccentric, harmless activity.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that the importance of a socio historical um, context is, is critical in
1: this. Is what, sorry? It's critical in this,
6: you know, as you described it, that, that it, in fact, all of us suffer from the loss of being brought up within particular constraints of particular gender constructions, it's, it's sort of which are very one, limiting...
1: One, I sort of wonder what this kind of utopian, non-gendered world would be like. might be a bit drab.
6: Well, there are so many other differences. I mean, it's interesting we're in a culture that sees gender as, as as being the fundamental difference, but there are all sorts of other differences.
0: Does anyone remember the Janet and John picture books? of the 1950s, were the idealised, suburban, middle-class, boy, girl, with loving parents that have stayed together, going to tea, having all those activities that were so idealised. And in one conference on abuse, where I was bringing up those pictures, saying this was the post-war, idealised version of childhood because people had gone through such a horrid time. They wanted to think of something very safe with clear-cut boundaries, and it, to me, it looked like the idealisation that came from Unworked Through Trauma. And a woman stood up in the audience and said, my husband was the model for John and his uncle was the artist and there was abuse in the family, oh. <laughs> said that in a great big, uh, in a great big conference. Um, and it, it was something about that longing for things to be clear-cut rather than to get a shock as we we still keep getting the, the poor sod that died while undergoing um, a consenting sexual torture, the, the motor racing boss um, oh. that's just been in the papers, that everybody's sexuality, whatever it is on the outside, has got all the bits of... every bit of hope, pain, along the way, and somehow there isn't a kind of freedom to acknowledge the plurality of that, which, which is something rather disappointing about this period in terms of all the different... Well, I think the
1: elephant in the room often is sexuality. Yeah. Because, you know, you know I, it, the, my motivation when I was young was sex. It was a turn-on. And I think that's what people don't want to talk about, you know. It, 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 I think that is the... That's what kind of keeps it tamped down, is that the people are turned on by these gender variables and various, you know, whatever, fetishes or... Um, orientations there I think and of course that you know it, 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 because it's kind of I suppose because you know heterosexuality we're used to seeing heterosexuality in our face the whole time and we know that you we've know, been a man and woman that, that they're turned on by and we don't have to be you know, I suppose because it's other all the a lot of the other sexualities like transgender is whatever are other there's that it kind of throws into highlight for an uh, for the onlooker oh that's about sex. Oh, no, I can't look at that. But, of course, but then, of course, every, every, all relations and all explanations of gender are about sex to a certain extent. It's just that they're other, and so, therefore, people are reminded that dirty business goes on connected with that thing. Yeah. And so I think that might be why it's sort of tricky, you know, because you're kind of thrusting your alternative sexuality into people's faces. That's the subtext with it. I can make it out that lovely trenning is all lovely and harmless and skip through the tulips and that. But at root, it's kind of about sex.
0: Someone at the back on the left. Oh, two people there. I wonder if it would be easier if people were willing to come to the front because we are missing people because of the lighting. Really sorry about that. It might be embarrassing to stand up and queue for the mic, but then at least we we are not going to miss your question. Can the lights change? Do we have a lighting person about... Oh, oh look at
1: that. Now we're yes. all equal.
0: Yes, yes, yes.
6: Can I ask you, please, uh, do you still have very direct... Uh,
1: Sorry, where are, we, where are we? I can't see you. Are you still making you your own pots from start to finish? Hello.
6: And how um, important to, is the process to you of making
1: of making things
6: of getting your hands dirty
1: can you say that again I'm really sorry
5: she's gone all shy (laughs) Um, I think she was asking whether you make your pots from start to finish still all of them oh yes and and how important that is to uh, the process of making is for you and I wanted to ask you a question as well (laughs) while I'm here whether I've noticed that most of the questions here have been about the sexuality and your transvestitism (laughs) whatever we call it but, and very few about your art, and I wonder if you find that overshadowing, you know, this big personality overshadowing your artwork.
1: Well, my and, art's not here, and I'm talking to Valerie, who's an Alanist, and an Anamnist, an so I've been more tolerant, Anna, if Anna, you like, Anna, almost Anna. of the kind of tranny thing, because that's more to the fore of what right, this evening here, is about. but that doesn't usually extent. happen. Normally, I would say, maybe after two or three, I'd say, I'm maybe I'm getting a bit bored of talking about wearing dresses, let's get talk about my art now. Right, but but it's, it's nice to be asked a question about my art. And I don't want to fetishize and become the poster boy of the handmade, because I know there's a kind of burgeoning movement of kind of people who are re, you know, finding new interest in craft, and there's that guy who recently wrote the book about becoming a motorcycle mechanic after he was a politician or something. And... I don't want to kind of fetishize it because I think we live in a pluralistic world now and I use digital technology. I use something like that. my motorcycle is mainly being built by the firm. And I, Is it a work of art? I think that it's quite nice to have all different things. But I do think it's very important still to have a material visceral relationship with uh, the materials you use because you get a feedback and that gives you a certain sort of vocabulary. Because if you, uh, you start thinking in clay, if you work with clay, or if you work in fabric, you think in fabric. If you work in metal, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's important, but I'm not going to say that, you know, um, people who uh, use fabricators are necessarily any worse, because there's great people who use fabrication studios, um, and there's bad people that use fabrication studios, and there's good people that use digital technology, and there's bad people. You know, it's like no, no technology or method... <laughs> is inherently good and bad. They're all as good and bad as the artists that use them. And so I'm not going to say that, oh, you've got to be this sort of artist. I just happened to grow up in an age when being able to draw and make things was a natural part of you know, childhood, let alone becoming an artist. You know, my father had... You know, I remember him in the shed, and he was a very kind of hands-on... He was what they call utility man, You know, who could make... Most mend most things in the house he could build a wall, do the garden plumb the sink he could even probably have a go at the radio because he, electro- he was an electrical engineer so
2: I mean it's completely fascinating um, I've just got a question for you about um, you said that when you, that you stayed in a girl's dress to be less threatening uh, to men rather than dressing as a woman and um, this was a sort of principle of yours um, what I see is that you stayed in the dress of a child whilst becoming an adult, and that this is actually quite a confrontational, or um, something with you know more than one meaning. Oh yeah. Quite, quite a you know quite a something which part, some people could find threatening. And I also think- you have similarly you have pots which are in essence containers, and can be symbolic of being, you know, comforting things, the good mother, or the boundaries, and all this sort of thing, and yet you decorate them with images which are extremely dangerous and threatening.
1: Um, well, on the second point first, I have this idea, you know, I am the bloke who made pots about, you know, difficult subjects. Actually, if you look, if you go through my monograph, probably a minority of them are about difficult subjects, you know, I make, I make my work about politics, religion, sex, but quite a lot of my work is you know, pretty innocuous in many ways, and so I, I, you know, I dispute the fact that you know I only ever go out to shock or make <laughs> things about difficult subjects. I want people to go, hmm, he's made me think, that's one thing, but it doesn't have to be shocking to do that. And in terms of me dressing as a little girl being uh, non-threatening, I, I sort of mention that in a slightly jokey way, because... You know, I, when, when I'm at parties and women have had a few drinks, you know, I get offers. And I, I, that's just my kind of rational interpretation of the fact that maybe they see me as non threatening, but I think I was slightly, I was being a bit, you know, I could understand that, yeah, a man in a dress, particularly a shouty one, you know, like me, can be quite intimidating. And uh, you know, when I used to be a life model, for instance, you'd think you're, you're most vulnerable when you're naked. But it's the opposite. It's almost like you're a magnet, and you kind of push people away when you, as you move towards them in the nude. <laughs> so it's, so I take your point and I think you're right. Yeah, there is something very uh, in your face about me. And, and of course, a lot of people will get, but take it very literally, and they'll put Charles dress man bad combination alarm bell. <laughs> you know, the pedo bell will go off in the newsrooms, and we'll be all be in deep trouble.
6: And the next question,
2: please. Very illuminating, thank you. You've said that the naffness of poetry was one of the things which drew you to the medium. And now you're making pots which are very unnaff, indeed. They're complex and beautiful things. And I was wondering if you would ever consider making pots which are uncomplicated in their beauty. I know you've made a pot which has emblazoned on it I Love Beauty but it's still a complicated pot because it's self-referential and so forth. Would you like to make pots which are unembarrassed in their beauty?
1: That is a really good question, and I don't say that very often because you've (laughs) you've, you've, you've drilled into something very particular, which is that I think one of the most tenderest things that you can ask an artist about is beauty. Because deep down, that is what is motivating a lot of artists, is that pursuit of... To, to make a sublime, their version of a sublime aesthetic. The problem for me with t- making uncomplicatedly beautiful pots would be I'd lose my inverted commas for starters, you know, and so they would just be pots. And I could do it, I could make an uncomplicatedly beautiful pot. And I've p- come pretty close to that I- over the years, you know. I've had to scrabble around for a high concept to justify it in an art gallery. And I think that one of my ambitions, I've often said when I get old, is not necessarily to make uncomplicatedly beautiful art, but to make happy art, which I think is a kind of approaching that, if you know what I mean. Because often we see shock and controversy as the kind of salt that kind of makes a kind of fairly unpalatable potato edible. Um, but, and as it becomes a more divine potato, it doesn't need that salt anymore. And so maybe, as I get older, I will approach... A happy, calm, reflective old age making uncomplicatedly beautiful things. That's a nice ambition. <laughs> Whether I'll ever get there, I don't know. <laughs> but a good, very good question. We've yes, got, thank you.
0: We've got five minutes <laughs> and we've got two people queuing there. So, should we hear both questions in a row, mm. Grayson? So
3: okay, one question, really just about the link between. Therapy and, and art, you've talked about a bit of this evening about the importance of therapy and something you've talked about previously as well. Um, just wondering how the, the therapeutic process and the creative process have worked alongside one another and how, if at all, they've inter, inter, interwoven, so whether there are themes that have emerged in one that have then got played out in the other and just as to, as to how, I guess, how, 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 they, how, how they have evolved and, indeed, as you have evolved as a person through the therapeutic process, whether, how that's impacted you as an artist.
1: Yeah.
0: And the second one we have we the, the
1: second question. The second if I got question, hold that. I think
4: it's thought. a question about values. Um, why did you
1: decide to come to this interview? Why <laughs> did I decide to come to this evening? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, um, I'll answer the first question first, which was about my, the relationship of psychotherapy to my work. And a lot of artists are scared of therapy because they think that they're kind of. Fucked upness is their creativity, and that sort of chaos and motivation, which is their kind of unconscious whatever's pulling them about. That's what makes them. But I think they should not be afraid. I mean, I, I, I'm only speaking for myself here. But it was for me. It was like someone had tidied up my tool shed, and they, they were, all my tools were still there, but I could find them, and I was more aware of them, <laughs> and I found a load more that I didn't know I had. And what's more, I was going to therapy once a week, which was like going to see a really sad or funny film, where I was the star, <laughs> which was a great thing to make work about. And it was really feeding. And, you know, and it, 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 I suppose what I liked about therapy was, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of the criticism of therapy from people who haven't had any, and you still get it now, hostility from, from all angles. Um, and there are bad therapists. Um... But uh, is that, it's kind of bullshit, you know, and it's like selfish, middle-class, belly-button gla- gazing. But I've actually found, my experience of therapy was it was the least bullshitty thing, and it was like having my kind of interior lens really given a good wash, and I was able to sort of zoom out and see th- things that, that I, you know... I, I had major revelations about myself and the world. And so I found it f- for an artist. It was a gift, and I think, I, you know, I, I made some of my... Strongest works while I was in therapy.
4: Uh, it made you express yourself
1: more, more truly, as it were. Yeah, it made me not afraid of being open, I suppose. I've never been that afraid of being open, but it made me even more so. It made me think you know, that uh, if I give out stuff, then more will appear. I think there's that kind of thing of, oh, I've got to keep my screwed upness because then, then I'll, have, I'll keep my precious stock of ideas. You know, I don't necessarily want to be one of those artists who had one good brushstroke and then built a career on it. I think there are. If you look through the history books, there's plenty of those. So uh, therapy's good for kind of keeping the old machine rolling. I think and being aware of what's going on.
4: You may be able to make
1: that beautiful pot one day. I may one day. Yeah, I will change. I will change. <laughs>
0: and the second question: the second, why, why did, did you... I come
1: this evening? Well, I was sort of I was interested because you know ever since. Again, it's related to the first question. Because of, you know, this is a, these are a series of conversations with people in the psychoanalytic world. And it's, some, it's an area that I'm very interested in. We, you know, me, my wife is a psychotherapist, and we talk about it all the time. And we talk about the world through that lens. And so I was interested in, you know, having a public version of it. Because, you know, I've, I've touched on things tonight. You know, for me, a good result of an evening like this for me is to say stuff that I haven't said before. And I've said quite a few things I feel I haven't said before, and that's been really fascinating uh, for me. And I hope for you too. <laughs> and, uh, so that's why I've come this evening, really, because I think that you know anybody that's done any group therapy will know that when you're speaking into an audience, everything you say kind of goes down this kind of well of... of um, what's the word? The well of significance, I'll call it. And it goes... And it's like... And it's like, and that, and it can be pretty big, you know. It really, and, and, and having that feeling of being listened to. It's, and this is like fantastic group therapy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we've come to the the point where people get a chance to um, chat to Grace and have a glass of wine, um, have a look at the books there. Philippa's books too. Who's also willing? Are you willing to stand up so people know what you look like, Philippa? (laughs) (laughs) And to thank Grayson, who, as he said, is is multi-platformed at the moment. Uh, But to be on this platform and actually, ironically and perhaps sadly, to bring hope in an area where people have actually been scared that therapy would pathologize them or wouldn't understand them or see them or appreciate them to give them extra hope that if you're being treated badly look elsewhere <laughs> and it actually matters that you find somebody that that sees that sees you properly um, that we all need to be seen and to thank You very much indeed for your openness on every level, which just gives hope to everybody, and for the beauty of your art. Thank you.